Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. I am your host, Elisa von jürgen Forgi, and I'm here with my co-host, Irene Victoria Massimino, and our technical producer is Rafi Zarzatian. You can find us on IraqProject.org, as well as on Patreon, Spotify, and iTunes. We are very, very lucky and honored today to be joined by Dr. Marina Mahetarian Lazaridou, an um, Armenian-Greek scholar, human rights advocate, and photographer, who will be speaking with us about many things, amongst them her visits to Artsakh and her work on the destruction and then also the preservation of cultural heritage. Before that, uh, we are going to go over a little bit of news just to update our listeners on what's going on in the world with relevance to genocide and its prevention. So shall we start with you, Irene? Yes, sure. Thank you, Elisa. Welcome, Marina. Thank you so much for being here with us. We'll just take, as always, a couple of minutes to do the news. So um, for more information on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, you can listen to our previous podcast. We did a special on that, uh, where we also talked about other things and our work on the Iraq project. But I'll bring today some news about the situation, especially in Gaza. So this is a piece of news from Al Jazeera. Um, that came out recently, and uh, its title goes, Israel's uh, Gaza strikes may constitute war crimes, UN's human rights chief Michel Bachelet says, uh, said recently, uh, because of the extensive civilian death and the major destruction in besieged enclave, home to two, uh, more than two million people actually, of which 1.2 million are refugees actually. Uh, even though the area is controlled by the terrorist organization Hamas, Palestinian people are not able, in Gaza, are not able to leave or enter because of uh, Israeli rules in the, situ in the region. So the human rights chief said the, the attacks that left more than 200 Palestinians killed may constitute one war crimes if they show to be disproportionate. As always, we will post this news in our website and probably also in our social media. Don't forget to visit our social media and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram as well. Um, of the in, during the 11-day offensive on the Gaza Street, which began on May 10 after the, the violence exercised by Israel, the idea of the Israeli police in Al-Aqsa and the, and the, um, the, uh, the violence also in, in the neighborhood in Jerusalem, in the Jaljara is right, uh, Elisa? Sheikh Jarrah. Sheikh Jarrah. Sheikh Jarrah, where with home demolitions and evictions of Palestinian families in the area. So the violence in Gaza started in May 10 after some rockets thrown by Hamas in the area and ended up with the, at least killed 253 Palestinians, including 66 children and wounded more than 1,900 people. Israel at that point said it targeted civilian buildings because those were areas where Hamas was locating its, uh, its um, 
intelligence or the armed group was located. But Michel Vachelet specifically said that there is no evidence, actually, that Hamas was located there. So they will do a throughout investigation, hopefully, uh, about this particular situation, as uh, there is, uh, of course, uh, a large amount of civilian deaths and also of uh, homes and governmental buildings destroyed and uh, areas of where citizens and residents leave have been absolutely destroyed. The damages have been enormous. And they've been talking about, uh, uh, the international community has been talking about giving monetary aid. However, you know, the lives that have been lost will, will never be recovered. So hopefully we'll have an investigation on this. I remember that Netanyahu said at the beginning, use uh, unlimited amount of force or something like that. I don't want to quote him incorrectly. I don't have his quote here, but he said something similar as he was not worried and actually said not to be worried about the investigations that might come afterwards. So he was sort of saying that he might commit war crimes in the area. So we'll see what comes out of, out of this investigation. Thank you so much, Irene. That's such an important topic, and we're hoping to have an entire episode dedicated uh, to this to this issue um, in the coming weeks. Certainly. So thank mm -hmm. you, and we'll we'll certainly keep updating on that. Um, I have two bits of news which I will mention very quickly. One is that this is news updating on um, these two recent reports: one from Rwanda and one from France, that found that France had extensive knowledge of the planning of the Rwandan genocide before it started um, and could have done much more to help Rwandans at that time. Um, these were uh, extensively researched reports um, done independently but that supported the findings, each other's findings. Um, and that sort of flew in the face of French denials of knowledge, which has characterized uh, France's foreign policy towards Rwanda since the genocide. So in the wake of those findings, um, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron has just visited uh, Rwanda, and he spoke at the Kigali Genocide Memorial in the capital city of Rwanda, where he also laid a wreath and observed a minute of silence, saying that France, this is a quote from him, France has a role, a history, and a political responsibility in Rwanda. It has a duty to confront history and to recognize its part of the suffering it inflicted on the Rwandan people by letting silence prevail too long over an examination of the truth. Um, I have come to recognize our responsibilities. So this is from an article in the New York Times with the title, Macron arrives in Rwanda to turn a new page in relations and the author points out that or the authors point out that um, Macron did not apologize for France's role but rather is stating that he wishes France to take responsibility. So that's interesting the politics of apology and that's something maybe we could talk about at some point. Um, it's very <laughs> it is very interesting isn't it? But the, his trip seems to have, uh, it had a strong and, and positive reception from the Rwandan president, Kagame, Paul Kagame, who, uh, who stated that, who called on the world to tackle racism and genocide ideology, as he called it. 
and stated that President Macron is someone who listens and is committed to supporting Africa based on what Africa itself has chosen. This is different, it is better, and it can last. Fundamentally, this visit is about the future, not the past. And so we see there, I think, some high-level diplomacy aimed at um, sort of reasserting maybe French uh, French interests in the region, right, but in a way that has been brokered by Rwanda on a more equal footing. So I find that very interesting, and we'll continue to update on that. Um, and this, this last article that I want to mention is one that I think is directly relevant to our discussion today. The title is Cultural Memory Center for Rohingya Community Launched, and it is from the Financial Express, a newspaper coming out of Bangladesh. Um, and so apparently what this covers is a new initiative by the UN Migration Agency um, and the Rohingya community in Bangladesh. So they've jointly launched this Rohingya Cultural Memory Center. It's being called the RCMC, uh, which is one of the first significant attempts to comprehensively document and preserve the heritage of the Rohingya people. Um, this is their description. The multidisciplinary initiative provides an online community space, interactive gallery, digital archive, and web-based exhibition for the Rohingyas. Um, there are currently nearly one million Rohingya refugees living in different parts of Cox's Bazaar camps. Um, and as we have discussed in previous episodes, their, their situation is often deteriorating. Um, security is, is also deteriorating. Um, and they have very, very limited resources in these camps for education um, and any sort of kind of cultural production. This is a common problem um, in refugee camps, and it takes on a particular proportion if these are refugees from genocide. So these are people who are fleeing the attempt to destroy their identity and their culture, ending up in refugee camps that are not even conceived of to help uh, genocide survivor, survivors reconstruct right, uh, what, what they have lost and what, what some uh, powers in the world are actively seeking to completely erase. Um, and so as might be expected, this RCMC... Um, uh, project also offers psychosocial support to survivors through art therapy. Um, it offers protection and skills development activities um, for children and adults and various other educational um, and mental health initiatives to help or to address the specific needs of genocide survivors. So I think this is just such wonderful news and it's such a wonderful initiative um, that I'm hoping we can promote as in our project as we go forward because Irena, you and I saw this directly when we were in Yazidi and Christian camps in Iraq. And the only, when we were there in 2016 and 2017, really the only organization, at least on the Yazidi side, that was working on cultural uh, sustenance and dynamism was Yazda. And that was organized entirely by the Yazidis, right? With some funding from interested persons outside, mostly in the United States, I think, and in Ar Armenia. Um, 
but but they had to do this entirely themselves, right? And they used digital resources, but they were kind of trailblazers in this respect. Um, and the Christians also were trying to maintain their culture, but there was so much drawing people away from their culture, right? The Yazidis had been 100% displaced, so um, they'd completely lost their, their heritage sites. You know, 70% of their temples were destroyed. So this is, you know, and we complained then that nobody is taking care of these deeper needs of genocide survivors. Um, and instead, they're just being treated as, you know, kind of generic refugees whose basic needs need to be met, but little else above and beyond that. And so it's nice to see an agenda within the United Nations to begin to address these deeper needs of genocide survivors. Sorry, Irena, I cut you off. No, I, yeah. yeah. I wanted to say something that the there's the the refugee camps in Bangladesh are very very different from the ones we saw in in Iraq. It's kind of interesting because when one arrives to the refugee camps in Bangladesh, there's no actual clear limit in between the population of Bangladesh actually and the refugee camp. So one sort of goes through and ends up getting in the camp, right? In what is the camp? It's, they're incredibly dense. It's more than a million people living in an, in an area that is relatively small. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, this has caused a lot of environmental problems as well. But on the positive side, uh, I mean, if there is actually a positive side in a refugee camp, but as you brought it up, Elisa, this is a positive aspect of it. There are a lot of initiatives that I didn't see mm. in the mm. in the in the Iraqi refugee camps. For example, there is one initiative about protecting the elephants trail because there is elephants in the area. So to protect the there is a lot of environmental conscience despite the fact that, you know, for our audience, Bangladesh is an extremely poor country, it's one of the poorest countries in the world. And the area of Cox's Bazar is actually a very nice area, very uh, close to the sea, and with a lot of nature, a lot mm. of uh, rich, wealthy mm. nature. It's close to, you know, where the Bengal tiger is, mm -hmm. the Sundarbans. They're called the Sundarbans in, in Bangladesh. It's close to. So there is a lot of awareness on that. And there's one particular um, initiative that I like to highlight that was done by many, many young volunteers, a lot of them women, of the Liberation War Museum. And it was a process of uh, sort of healing through knitting. You know knitting? Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I don't know if I'm saying yeah, knitting. it correctly. You're saying it right. Knitting, knitting yeah. yeah. So apparently the Rohingya culture has uh, women, especially, uh, do a lot of knitting in, in mm -hmm. their communities. So what they did is, and I have photos, maybe we can upload some photos in our website or something. They did uh, finally, right, for, for a period of time of, of a few months, they had these women gathering to do knitting of what their life was before the, the attacks came through and they had to mm -hmm. leave their country. Mm -hmm. Some of the memories they have or what they expected, some of them portrayed in knitting the violence they suffered. Wow. So it was really, really nice, really powerful too. And all of these knittings were exhibited in the museum. Uh, very nice. So there are things going on, fortunately, a lot done privately, by even by the Rohingya who organized themselves. They have, for example, a group had a small radio station, like a Voice of uh, Rohingya, Voice of mm -hmm. Yesidi. They, mm -hmm. I think, is called Voice of Rohingya. 
So to keep, you know, not only to talk about the violence, but also to keep uh, their identity alive. Yeah. Certainly in, in conditions that are, that are extremely difficult to do that because it's completely outside of this. So anyway, I don't want to take more time from the interview with Marina because she is the one who needs to speak today. That's right. And I'm sure she has something to say about these sorts of initiatives, sure. too, because she's been working on this her whole life. So, yeah, I look forward to that. Okay, so that's the news, everyone. We're moving on. Thanks very much. Okay, so Marina, I'm going to introduce you here. So our guest is Marina Magetarian Lazaridou. Um uh, she was born to Armenian and Greek parents in Armenia, and she began learning languages at a very young age because of this transnational background, and she now speaks four languages. So in, on our last program, um, we met a Yazidi activist who speaks, I forget, we didn't ask him how many, but he speaks English so well, and of course he speaks Kermanji and several other languages, I believe. So I, Elena I'm and I... I'm learning my fifth language, Turkish. Now I am learning the you're Turkish You're learning Turkish. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Oh, that's so five wonderful. languages. Thanks for the update. Yeah. So that's amazing. Irena and I are trying... Irena speaks perfect English, Spanish, <laughs> <No>. right? Italian. <laughs> Italian. So, you know, I do English, German, some French, but uh, yeah, French, but we French. want to learn Arabic, Armenian, Kermanji. We have a long list <laughs> as well. We, we have, have to time. get busy. We have time. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, God willing. So okay. Yeah. So she speaks four, five languages now. Um, as a student, she chose to study theoretical physics, right? She writes as yeah. an opportunity to understand and explore the universe and its laws. I absolutely love that. After completing a PhD that was at the crossroads of mathematics and mathematical modeling, she became attracted to archaeology um, and pursued two doctoral studies in archaeology, one at Ghent University in Belgium and one at the Aristotle University at Thessaloniki. After her studies, she worked for almost 15 years in the Christian organization Mother's Sea of Holy Etchmiadzin, the religious and spiritual center of all Armenians scattered throughout the globe. Um, that work taught her to be empathetic to others, offering assistance to those in needs. Through a personal documentary of photographs from three genocides, the Armenian, Greek, and the Assyrian genocides, she broadened her vision and was compelled into the field of safeguarding cultural heritage in zones of conflict. Over the last three years, she has worked for the Dutch NGO Walk of Truth, which operates out of The Hague in the Netherlands, the mission of which is to protect cultural legacy in zones of conflict. Her documentary photography project, Peace and Photography, considers the case of Artsakh and the Turkish and Turkish occupied Cyprus. Um, it has been exhibited in New York, London, Thessaloniki, Yerevan, and Shushi in Artsakh. Since February 2020, she has worked as an independent researcher on religious freedom, religious diplomacy, interfaith and religious di interreligious dialogue, ecumenical matters, peace and reconciliation, peace building issues, and the endangered Christians of the Middle East. 
In August 2020, she registered for the um, she registered a new NGO called Action for Peace in Armenia. So welcome. Marina, we are so happy to have you here, and I am sure we have a lot to discuss. Uh, thank you very much for the introduction, and thank you very much for the warm welcoming. And I would like to start our conversation um, because I was born in the former USSR, and mm -hmm. to some extent we will be speaking about cultural heritage, identity, genocide, prevention of genocide. So in the core of all these problems, there is identity. Mm -hmm. There is Christian uh, Christians, there is faith, religion, and identity. Because I was born in the former USSR, um, and there, is wo there was no so shaped identity, because I was born to Armenian and Greek parents, I started to feel very proud of my origins after the collapse of the former USSR. Hmm, hmm. Because I was just Christian when I was 40 years old. Can you imagine? Wow. And this is a normal way of uh, developing uh, me as a Christian. Because I was a scientist and for me the most important was the loss of universe. And uh, let's hmm. say mixed with the Soviet uh, uh, let's say, uh, approach to religion, it was normal. And um, I'm, uh, my family name in Armenian, Mahitarian, it's, it, it is, uh, as always, I am, um, smile, with smile I uh, tell that my fortune is sealed by history. Let me explain what is, uh, what is exactly does it mean in my case. Because my grandfather, he was Armenian from the, uh, he was born in Turkey, I mean, this is Western Armenia. Mm -hmm. And when, in 1915, the year of the Armenian genocide, he was just eight years old orphan. Mm -hmm. And with a group of orphans, he fled to Armenia and um, he, find, uh, he found refuge here in Armenia. So as a blessing and as a prayer, um, he adopted Mahitarian surname. Mahitarutsun in Armenian means consolation. Um. The ancestral mountains, the ancestral highlands blessed him with this, inspired him, uh, inspired him with this uh, consolation. Wow. It was like inner peace, you know. And this is sometimes when uh, I am on vacation and I'm out of my scientific and research ideas. I feel this consolation, it comes to, through century, you know, yeah. that I'm in Armenian highlands or I am somewhere uh, in the nature. Uh, and this is something special. And I, I feel this. Perhaps I understand. Now I try to explain you. But this is something you have to feel. Mm. So that's why my fortune was sealed by history, mm. by the dark pages of the Armenian history. And all this, uh, let's say, uh, mixed with my scientific uh, background, uh, it brought me to um, Christian organization. Mm. Of course, I was working there as a personal deputy, as a deputy personal director for 15 years. But it was enough to understand, 
to absorb all these Christian, uh, let's say, values, Christian uh, ideology, and to understand that the most important is to help people who are in need. Hmm. And as you uh, emphasized, uh, it's really very important for me. This is the, let's say, the highlights of my career. And uh, the impression was like I was born to work in zones of conflict because uh, I feel empathy to these people and cultural heritage for me hmm. uh, is the core of saving our identity. Thank you so much. That's a great way to start. Irena, you look like you have something. <laughs> No, Marina, I just have a curious question. So you mentioned your yes. uh, Mahitarian, right? Means yes. consolation, right? Yes, yes. How wonderful. How is the Armenian last name created? You know that in different parts of the world, last names come either, um, I have Danish origin, right? So my mom's last name is Kiasko Jensen, which is son of Jens. Yeah. Jensen yeah. is son of Jens, yeah. right? Yeah, and Kiasko yeah. is a, it's a, like a field of of an animal that I can't remember the name in English, but that's what it means because they were farmers. So what is the origin of Armenian last names in general? Do you, you know? know? I, you might not know, but just No, no, just question. in general, I can, uh, yes. let's say, explain what I know. Uh, there is no only one way uh, of developing Armenian surnames, hmm. okay. but it can be connected with location, where this person was born, it can be connected with the uh, occupation, let's say what he is doing. It can be connected who is his father. For yes. example, my Greek family name, Lazaridou, it means from the family of Lazarus. Mm. From the family, okay, so similar, yeah. okay. Yeah, so it can be different, uh, let's say, uh, roads of development, let's say, it depends. But uh, in fact, all this is connected, uh, I mean, if we consider different nations, I believe uh, the mechanisms are the same it's in similar, general. Yes. But it's nice It's nice that your last name is Consolation. It's a beautiful name. It, it is and, a beautiful name. And, and, and it does you mark just, your life. I think even the name you have, you know. I, I am a my, consolation for my nation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and, I, you know, I, my oh. name is Greek. Irene is the Greek name. Yeah. And the goddess yes. of peace. So I always yes. like to think that my name somehow... Uh, pushes me to be peaceful and to try to do things for peace. So it's true what you say about your Irini. the link. Irini mm -hmm. means peace. And you know what I am usually, uh, my joke, that because I travel a lot, I work in different countries, and I like to be everywhere, so physically as well, not only in my ma mind. So I'm. Uh, this is my favorite joke. So in spirit, I'm gypsy. In, in heart, I'm Greek. In prayers, I'm Armenian. And in mind, I'm a citizen of the world. Oh, I wonderful. think this is uh, uh, express all Beautiful. my, let's say, yes, yes, that's my inner wonderful. world completely. Yeah. That's yeah. really I'm, I'm going to copy that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I am a po poet as well, you know, because uh, I like to express my, mm. um, you know, I am scientist from one side, researcher, from another side, I am an artist, 
That's it's why amazing. I chose photography, because, for example, for me, photography is not only a photographic exhibition or a show, photo show. Behind uh, of this uh, photographic exhibition, there is a concept, mm -hmm. a scientific concept. And usually it is a documentary photography research project. I always add to this research because this is a completed research documentary project. And I will share with you, I'm starting a new, uh, let's say, um, way for me, creative way for me. I want to shoot a short documentary, Nostos, where is my home? Oh, wow. Nostos in ancient Greek means return home, return to roots. This is identity. So, uh, Nostos, where is my home? I want to make a short documentary, 10 minutes, and it will be, I think, uh, uh, in line with all my these uh, achievements and accomplishments. Wow, that's incredible. So have yeah. you, I mean, yeah. do you have experience doing documentary filmmaking or is that sort of kind of a, uh, a new a skill? This is a new challenge that, in my life. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I like to meet new challenges in my so life. Great. And this is very important. That's, uh, that's why for me to visit Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh mm. is, uh, is completely a very dear to my heart mission because uh, I'm turning to Artsakh now, mm. our conversation, mm. because um, I uh, have started to visit Artsakh since 2011, already 10 years. And uh, I was visiting uh, Hak village, which is in Kashatakh region, and now it is under the Azeri control. It was uh, surrendered to Azerbaijan. So... Uh, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Surrender in the, the territory. After the 9th mm -hmm. of November yeah. 2020. Mm -hmm. And um, I can tell you that uh, when in 2015, when we marked the Armenian Genocide Centennial, mm. and when I had an exhibition uh, dedicated to the three genocides, Armenian, Greek, and Assyrian, it was about 40 photographs. And I, one day after my main exhibition in Yerevan, I took these photographs and uh, I rented one car and I uh, just went to this region. It is from Yerevan about seven or eight hours. Hmm. So we gathered in one small room because it was village school. And uh, can you imagine people came with their children, about 50 or 17 people, small uh, children, ladies, and I was showing them these photographs, and wow. I was sharing my thoughts, and it was so sincere, so cordial uh, environment that I cannot forget. And perhaps this is the most important exhibition in my life. Can you imagine? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yes. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. And this was the one in Sushi? sushi? Or... No, no. This one was in this uh, village, in the highland, Hak uh, village. Huck. How do you spell that in, in case people want to find it on a map? How do H-A-K. Oh, Huck. Just Huck. H-A-K. Okay. okay. And, uh, and uh, I have four websites. Mm. So uh, you can, uh, when you publish, the, yes. when you post this interview, 
you can just uh, publish my website so they will have opportunity Absolutely. to see this. Absolutely. And uh, you know why now we are talking about photography and uh, how I can express my thoughts through mm-hmm. photography related to genocide. I was in Lebanon in the mm-hmm. spiritual center uh, Antilias, where is the center of uh, Cilicia, and uh, there is a very nice, uh, there is a very important monument there, Armenian genocide uh, mm-hmm. monument. And there are skeletons, bones, mm. and it is glass, in the glass. And when I, I took a photo of me, I was reflected. And mm. you know, it was like mm. selfie. I saw in my body all these bones. So wow. I, I interpreted this as if you X-ray every Armenian, you will see the suffering of their ancestors, their yes. yes. souls. That's so so beautiful, so touching. This is one of the core photographs Mm. of my project, Peace and Photography. Mm. Yes, very powerful, very powerful. Have you published that photo, uh, Marina? Okay, it's on your website. I I will share with you so you can uh, share with your uh, listeners or readers. uh, Yeah. Yeah, actually, maybe if if you allow us, we could make that sort of the headline photo for our social media. It sounds really amazing. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. please. please. Um, you will see I will share this is with it I am blessed uh, to share with you something which can be can explain more to your readers. Mm-hmm. That's is, wonderful. Just, uh, yeah, we'll make sure everyone has all of the links to to yeah. your work for sure. So I have a question when you work so so um, you know this is so wonderful to hear how you have taken a difficult, painful past and kind of manifested it as a message of peace, really continuing the tradition of your grandfather, right, who chose a name that is, yeah. is sort of a word for rebirth, consolation, right? It's an over, it, not necessarily an overcoming, but a, but a sense of, of living with and continuing on despite, um, yeah. despite all that trauma. Did he speak to you about the trauma and about the genocide when you were growing up? Uh, you know, uh, I remember that I was eight years old, like my grandfather when he came, mm-hmm. he arrived to Armenia. And uh, we were walking and he was uh, telling these narratives to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't write anything, but I remember uh, his voice. Hmm. The, I remember the pain in his voice, hmm. and then I remember the hope in this voice. And uh, you know, this consolation, what is important, I understood. This consolation is not only peace uh, for the soul. No. This consolation gives me strength hmm. to give a voice to this problem. Hmm. Because silence is a crime against humanity, as said the wife of one Russian poet. Yeah. And it really, this consolation makes me strong yeah. to be not silent. Yeah, yes. that's amazing. This is very important, this transformation is very important. And this mm-hmm. intergenerational uh, trauma mm-hmm. uh, gives this opportunity to speak loudly. Mm-hmm. I would like to share one story. When I was doing mm-hmm this uh, research for three genocides. And I went uh, to the Armenian 
Turkish state border, the neighboring uh, villages. And it was uh, very interesting for me to speak to the descendants of the Armenian genocide survivors. Mm -hmm. And uh, one uh, grandfather, he was about 85 years old, 85-90 years old. He couldn't uh, speak for five minutes. He was crying. Mm -hmm. And I was really touched because in 85 years, yeah. this intergenerational trauma came and all these feelings, they were alive. Yeah. Yes. And it was very interesting. Usually I ask this question uh, to all my interviews because, for example, in September before the last war in Artsakh, mm -hmm. I was in uh, Artsakh in Nagorno-Karabakh with my project Nostos, War, Identity and Peace. And mm -hmm. I interviewed about uh, 45 uh, women starting from the ministers, judges, uh, village women, uh, teachers, etc. And uh, I understood that in 85 years, even in one century, feelings of people, they are alive. Mm -hmm. I mean, this mm -hmm. generational trauma, mm -hmm. pain, sufferings, they are still the same. I mean, they just, uh, we have to be, um, we have to organize our feelings, organize our feelings. It's not a contradiction. Right. In mm. a way, in mm. a way, transform them in a way that we can speak loudly and we will yes. be not silent. Mm -hmm. So this is very important. And uh, mm. I uh, interviewed during this, uh, in 2015, about seven survivors. Mm -hmm. I was surprised. They, are, they were so kind people. Mm. They found refuge in Armenia, but uh, one of them was 104 years old gentleman. Wow. Oh. Not grandfather, gentleman. <laughs> and I will explain why. Because he was telling, he was uh, sharing uh, the story of his love, mm. and his eyes were blinking. Mm. I never could imagine that in such an age, a man can speak about his wife who passed away, let's say, 40 years ago yes. with so deep love and respect. Mm. Nice. So, oh, it so is beautiful. Not, yes, very beautiful. It's not only, a, let's say, a kind of uh, project that I shoot them, I speak to them, but I learn as well. This is a, let's say, reverse uh, process as well. Let's say, accumulating of their, uh, let's say, knowledge of their experience of life. This is really, uh, it's enriched me. It's very Amazing. important. I think, yeah. I think we can relate to that with our experience yes. with survivors. I've always felt enriched afterwards. Yeah. And I want to ask you a little bit about, this is such an important thing you're pointing out, the fact that... Um, survivors of genocide and mass atrocity, the pain never goes away. I had this experience with Holocaust survivors who would still break down and cry and talking about loss of their family members, for example, or the moments when they last saw their mom or, or these critical moments um, in the trauma. 
And they would cry as if it were happening right then and there, mm-hmm. do you know? And it was this sort of unmediated grief that that never goes away. And, you know, we know from in the United States, Holocaust survivors who have been the most vocal group of survivors um, that, you know, when they speak often at schools, you know, to raise awareness. But then it takes weeks and weeks for them to to feel a little bit more stable again emotionally. And so this is the work that that they have to do for their entire lives. And um, I feel like this is so what you're saying. I mean, the way that you're framing it as as um, as sort of such valuable work and such important emotional work is really important in a world where. I think survivors are often told to just be resilient and get over it and move on. And so they often have to hide their grief. Do you know, I know with the Yazidi survivors, the international community often focuses on their resilience. Oh, look how strong they are. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and tells this kind of this, this, this sort of coercive, positive story um, that that I think can be very harmful. Yes, women; these women are very strong. Irena and I saw that, and they're capable of laughter and love and generosity and kindness and peace and all of those very healthy things. Um, but but you know that strength comes from so much work. It's not a simple resilience like a rubber band that you pull mm-hmm. and it snaps exactly. back. And I feel like they don't get credit. Right. For the for the enormity of 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 what they're doing, because we have this silly resilience narrative. So I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that. I would like to continue your thoughts in the following direction to Mm. to develop these thoughts, because what is pain? Mm -hmm. It's not just physical pain, Mm -hmm. because then this pain will transform, transform to memory Mm -hmm. because this gives us uh, strength. To keep memory, right. and uh, I love a Levizel quote: "If anything can, mm-hmm. it is memory that will save humanity." For oh. me, hope without memory is like memory without hope. So, wow. if we mm-hmm. continue mm-hmm. this uh, pain, it uh, transforms to memory, and memory gives hope. Hope for. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this is, was the main highlight of my documentary photography research dedicated to mm-hmm. three genocides. Mm-hmm. Can memory trigger a genocide prevention? Mm-hmm. And my, uh, let's say, my response, mm-hmm. uh, which was based on my uh, two years experience of my research on my photographic, let's say, show, was that yes, to some extent, yes, because memory is uh, hope and uh, hope for recognition, hope for life, Mm. hope to continue to Mm. live, Mm. for revival. For example, now Nagorno-Karabakh. I am always delighted with these people. They witnessed uh, so many difficulties. They suffered so much. But when I speak to them, I accumulate their positive uh, attitude to life. This is something what I just shared with you, that I learn from all the Mm -hmm. people around me what I can. And uh, really, people in zones of conflict, Mm -hmm. they are wonderful people. So true. They 
they appreciate the simple life. Yes. And yes. this is something we have to learn as well. Yes. Yeah. I wanted to add something, Marina, that you mentioned yes. the word recognition. And I was thinking of what you both said of, you know, the, the difficult, the resilience and, and this trauma that keeps on coming back. Will you, I mean, I'm thinking when there is lack of recognition or situations where the people are denied their rights, right? I'm thinking of the lack of recognition of the Armenian genocide and the problem now, the conflict and the occupation of new areas of Artsakh and what seems to be happening again, this, this, for example, the trophy park again oh, that God. resembles the, 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 the Armenian genocide. All of that brings memory, but I'm also thinking of the Palestinians as well because mm -hmm. it's unfortunately a current topic too where these people are waiting, they've been waiting for 60 years to return, where you said to that right of returning. So when denial is there, live, when there's lack of recognition of the violations that mm. happened to them, right, mm. with the crimes that were committed to them, I think probably that pain is much more difficult to, yeah. uh, um, to process. Because when someone tells you, I know what happened to you, I asked for forgiveness, like for example, the Rwandan genocide or what's happening now with Germany and Namibia as well. Re Germany's recognizing and paying Namibia. Maybe the victims individually are not getting any money or any recognition. This was in the beginning of the 20th century. But at least there is that, I think maybe a relief that someone and the responsible individuals or the responsible entities and countries are saying, okay, we had that responsibility mm -hmm. and we are recognizing what happened to you. But that pain seems much more difficult to process when the majority are not recognizing what is happening. And I see this with, right, with the Armenian genocide, but we also see it with other uh, victims of, of individual and collective pain, I mean, right? It, because it's different. I think each individual processes pain in, in a very different way. Some are more resilient, some might be able to come out and speak more. Some, I've, I've heard of, of relatives of victims of the Armenian genocide said, no, they don't speak, you know, they don't want to speak about it at all. They, they never want to bring it up, what happened to them, right? So what are your thoughts on, on this, on the impact of recognition in individual and collective pain and memory? Uh, I would like to answer on your question, Irene, in the following sense. Because when I have pain and uh, I want to overcome this situation, in this case, cultural heritage, mm -hmm. my identity helps me mm. Mm. because uh, of course uh, as you said pain can be collective and can be sharp can be le more or less it depends on the recognition on different countries etc etc but the question is because pain is not absolute something mm. i mean mm -hmm. it yeah. has to be considered in the system as uh, this is something comes from physics the theory of relativity. But I think in this case, we can uh, manage, we can monitor our pain. This is I'm telling. Mm -hmm. And this can, this can be collective memory, mm -hmm. and this is, can be cultural memory about what uh, you talked in the beginning of this uh, program, uh, Elisa. Mm -hmm. So I think when we are speaking about pain, cultural heritage, identity, for example, for me, it's very important because 
let's say as a descendants as descendants of uh, this cult of these genocide survivors we have to save culture mm-hmm. but there is another yes. there is a reverse process as well because we save our monuments and our monuments save us yeah. save our yes. identity this uh, feeling i um, um, i uh, let's say deep uh, deeply understood uh, yeah, understood the feeling this is uh, yeah, strange but it uh, when i was shooting um, in memory of my mother i visited uh. all greek settlements of armenia mm. and because armenia is homogeneous country it was f- 15 years ago mm. because armenia is homogeneous country i mean 95% are armenians and yes. you everywhere see the armenian culture but oh, when yeah. you go to the greek uh, let's say uh, village and you go to the greek necropolis you see different uh, let's say inscriptions you see different culture mm-hmm. and you see different uh, let's say byzantine style chapel wow, yeah and for me it was a discovery complete discovery and i was feeling like you know that i am armenian but i am flying but i have wings of greek uh, let's say uh, mm-hmm. bear because i was flying that's i was so wonderful. happy yeah it's wonderful that's why i want to say that uh, mm-hmm. cultural identity give uh, um, create shape our identity heritage mm-hmm. create uh, shapes our identity and this helps to monitor this pain uh, mm-hmm. yeah course, that is uh, no please i may be I'm a bit uh, philosopher but I think through my philosophical let's say uh, um, approach you feel something which academically uh, it is not expressed in the uh, let's say scientific articles etc Exactly yeah. I think yeah, yeah this is really really important because what you're getting at is why you know how the genocide convention doesn't include cultural destruction in its you know plain language the legal yeah. definition although rafael lemkin that was sort of his most important concern yeah. and and he wanted it in there and and he included it you know in his definition of genocide um it just didn't make it into the legal convention largely because many states at the table were worried that then they would be oh, yeah. they right be charged they were colonizers <laughs> they they sort of destroyed they identity in many places <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly so um so you know so it's not there it's so the you know the legal and the academic um language around genocide really tends to speak about culture very instrumentally if at all and and doesn't hasn't really thought through the importance of a monument or a church or a you know a religious institution to to kind of the spiritual emotional intellectual you know lives of of the people being targeted you know and so i'm wondering if you would talk a little bit more about this because it's really really important and you're you're helping our listeners and me <laughs> understand better you know how how we can make this argument that destroying culture is a form of genocide irena you look like you had something no, that you want to add to no i i, I yeah. want to add something before marina answers yeah. and goes on on this that parts of the territory of arsak mm-hmm. that were lost in the last war mm-hmm. had 
elements of that culture and identity uh, tombs where people would go and pray or uh, rocks etc that were monuments represented not only churches because we see the Shushi cathedral issue at the moment but also other uh, smaller maybe in, in size actually mm -hmm. elements that were part of the everyday identity of the Armenians yeah. in the area so uh, thank you for these questions uh, dear ladies and uh, there is a very famous uh, Russian uh, painter who once noted, where there is peace, there is culture. Mm. Where mm. there is culture, there is peace. Wow. Beautiful. And uh, in January 2021, I went to Artsakh again, because this is, was the aftermath of the war. And mm. for me, it was important to understand the role of religion in the aftermath of the war. So I went to the churches, chapels, and uh, uh, monasteries, which are in the highlands. And there, you feel like it is a monologue mm. with God. Let's say mm. a silent dialect or monologue mm. up to you. You feel the spiritual power of the Armenian heritage in Artsakh. Mm. I am not so emotional because I am a scientist, but as an artist, let's say in combination scientist and artist, it gives, let's say, it is like earthquake. Mm. And uh, there is a famous grandmother and grandfather, uh, a symbol of Artsakh, and it calls, we are our mountains. And you feel this is the really the highlands mm. and the monasteries they create this uh, spirit of cultural heritage, this uh, pride to be proud of cultural heritage. And, uh, for example, I never could understand that why the representatives of one nation can destroy, let's say, the culture of another yeah. people. Because uh, for example, in case of Artsakh, this is clear that Azerbaijan wants to eradicate yes. the evidence of culture and identity of the Armenian heritage. This is uh, something which uh, doesn't need proof. Mm -hmm. This is obvious. But for me, for example, it's very painful when I visited far for six times the Turkish occupied part of Cyprus. For example, yeah. this is another part of, uh, let's say, of the world and another culture. But it is still, let's say, Christian. And I was, there are many, there are three, uh, there are a few Armenian uh, uh, churches and monastery in the Turkish occupied part of Cyprus. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's say, I visited one of, uh, I visited the liturgy in one of such uh, renovated churches in the Turkish occupied part of Cyprus. As a person of Armenian origin, I didn't feel myself like I'm in the Armenian church. It was renovated completely, but this feeling of, uh, uh, this is, uh, of long history of the spiritual life of Armenian people, I didn't have this feeling. Mm. This, uh, let's say, uh, 
because this is very important. Usually, where I go, I uh, the first thing what I do, I visit Armenian church, because right. this gives me, let's say, inspiration that uh, I am Armenian of Armenian origin, and this is a question of identity as well. Hmm. So, uh, I believe that, uh, as I said. Where there is peace, there is culture. Where there is culture, there is peace. But to peace is not something that we can achieve immediately. They say to establish for the establishment of peace, we need we need justice. Justice is a necessary mm. precondition yes. of the establishment of peace. And uh, when I speak about justice, peace, cultural heritage, cultural identity. There is a religious, spiritual identity as well, let's say for Armenians as well. Mm -hmm. It's not only cultural identity, but uh, this religious identity as well. Because 95% uh, let's, uh, in Armenia there are Armenians, and the most of them are followers of the Armenian Apostolic Church. Uh, and for me, of course, uh, there are Armenian Catholics, Armenian Orthodox, but uh, for me, for example, I understand that every Armenian has to be spiritual and has to follow his church. That's why um, cultural heritage, it's not everybody of us, we have to educate our children to respect hmm. the cultural heritage of other nations. As okay. is, is very important as well, we have to educate our children to keep memory. For example, uh, five years ago, because the last five years I was not in Armenia, as uh, Elisa introduced me, I was working in the Netherlands and Cyprus. But uh, in 2015, I felt that I am an only person in Armenia who visits the uh, Assyrian Genocide Memorial when there is Assyrian remembrance, Assyrian genocide remembrance mm. day, I visit the Holocaust memorial with my Jewish friends. I visit Armenian genocide and Greek genocide. Uh, I mean, on, on all remembrance days, I am there mm. because I was working for my project and I was shooting, but I was with them in my spirits and my thoughts in my prayers, and I understood that when uh, our children, they put flowers on this memorial, they have to not only put these flowers, but they have to understand that they pay a tribute, not only to their ancestors, to the mm. memory of their ancestors, but this is, it has to go beyond, beyond uh, the national borders. I mean, this to be considered in the international, that uh, this is humanity. And as uh, as uh, Wiesel noted fairly, it's memory that will save humanity. So I will continue educating our children uh, to respect other nations, I mean, culture of other nations, identity of other nations. This is already a step to prevent a genocide as well. Oh, that's just fabulous. That's absolutely wonderful. 
That's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. That's how we feel with, yeah. you know, with our project, Marina. We, we try to remember every genocide, every, every sort of atrocity that has occurred to the different peoples. Because it's not about only, like you said, I think when injustice happens somewhere, and someone said this, I'm not just saying it, right? But when injustice happens, Martin Luther stopped, King, Jr. Exactly. When it happens somewhere, it happens to everyone, actually. We're all somehow linked. And when one thinks of one genocide, you see the links of your even your own history, you know, your individual ancestral history, then your the collective history to the place where you belong, to the places you visit. And um, I think it's very important, this education in peace, you know, or peace education. Mm -hmm. It's a lot about memory and cultural identity. Mm -hmm. uh, when I visit usually Artsakh, just, uh, we have time, just uh, Yes, yes, we have minutes. time. Yeah. When I visited uh, Artsakh, usually I visit uh, Artsakh State University mm -hmm. because it's a real pleasure and blessing for me to have uh, to give a talk to these young uh, stu people to the students and to have just a sincere conversation with them in uh, uh, september i had a wonderful meeting and now in january uh, it was just 25 minutes and i asked them i want to talk with you about i want to talk about hope and dreams Yes. And this is very important. And um, in the, uh, they were about uh, 30 students, just one gentleman and uh, the other young ladies. And uh, I was reading there and I asked them to write on the piece of paper their dream and hope. And uh, all of these young ladies, they wrote, they want to stay in Artsakh, wow. they mm -hmm. want to live in Artsakh, they want, a, they want peace for their homeland. And right. uh, when I was reading these messages, I was just, uh, you know, it was a special feeling. Yes. I cannot define it, but uh, I understood that uh, hope creates life. Mm -hmm. And hope yeah. is uh, something divine, but uh, there are, uh, I, will, I would say from the Greek uh, theology, I love uh, Saint, Saint Sophia, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. she, she has three daughters, uh, faith, hope, and love. And now <laughs> these three are important, love, faith, and hope, but the most important is love. So these people who witnessed so many suffering, so they overcome so many difficulties, their heart is loving. And the Greek saying, yeah, the love which loves is always young. So these people really, uh, they have lo loving hearts. And this is very important. And loving heart has always hope. And hope is the most important because with hope you can build future, with yes. hope you can build peace, with hope you can uh, build your family, and family is, let's say in a global context, is a homeland. Oh, that is, is so beautiful.
I have yeah totally totally wonderful talking to you Marina. it is it's wonderful I have so You're many questions person. totally yep, I, and I, this could go on forever but I think we're gonna have to have you back you're going to Artsakh right yes now. on Sunday I am leaving for Artsakh and uh, I will be back in uh, July great but uh, my uh, let's say vision it's a bit different, and it's not so academic, maybe, but I believe for your listeners uh, and for your uh, listeners, it will be interesting to have another, let's say, uh, approach. Oh, let's absolutely. Say, like fresh air. Listen, if academics <laughs> had been successful at preventing genocide, that would be one thing. But, you know, <laughs> academia has been um, miserable at that. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, we, and we mostly actually don't interview academics, right, Irina? No, we, no. no, no, no. We, we, we interview we a lot of people with PhDs, like you, Marina. Yeah. You have a PhD, exactly. but they aren't like an academic we, that way, yeah. We, we are, our, our podcast aims at touching different, different yeah. aspects of genocide, you know, and also at yeah. reaching people in a way that, not a book does or not uh, not a, a class sort of a class a lesson in a classroom yeah. or something it's it's just it's it's having people like you yeah so. absolutely and, it's wonderful. Uh, i would like to continue because uh, what i do usually i do in an international context so mm. my next uh, let's say geographical location is iraq <gasps> because before coming to armenia I bought uh, my ticket, uh, it was January 2000, uh, 2020, and I was ready to fly to Iraq, to Kurdistan. Right. Um, but uh, due to some geopolitical, yeah. let's say, circumstances, I decided to come to Armenia because from Armenia it is uh, easier to work uh, in the Middle East, let's yes. say. Yes, certainly. And uh, my first uh, project, which is in my mind, I want to have an exhibition there dedicated to genocide. So let's say from my, it will be a joint project with one of the, let's say, perhaps uh, uh, Yazidi representatives mm -hmm. or uh, other. Let's say it will be a joint project. From one side, it will be three genocides, and from let's say Yazidi, maybe Yazidi genocide, we will uh, we can represent together. Because I have many good friends uh, in Kurdistan, in Baghdad. Mm -hmm. So uh, just I want to, let's say, to complete my mission here in Artsakh uh, and uh, to work simultaneously in Iraq uh, and uh, Artsakh. This is my, let's say, uh, next points, let's say. Wow, wonderful. That's, that's a great we, project. Next time you visit us, we'd like to talk a little bit about Iraq and the Christians and the minorities and what yeah. occurred to them, since you yeah. have a, an interreligious dialogue approach yeah. to yeah. genocide prevention as well. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can talk about that, Marina, next time, right? Yeah. Okay. And your experiences in Artsakh. Um, yes. as well. So we'll, we'll plan that for July. This is a very exciting. Um, yeah. Yeah. I have one quick question before we all go. Please? So you mentioned yeah. that these um, families in Haq, right, in, in Artsakh, yeah. that they're now under Azeri, or that region is now under Azerbaijani control. Yeah. So did those, yeah. do you know what happened to those families that you met? Are they now refugees in Artsakh? Are they in Armenia? Do you know where the people from Haq are? 
it was six years ago yeah, so... and I didn't have a chance to mm-hmm. follow mm-hmm. but uh, when you said this I recalled uh, that uh, nine years ago in this village uh, we organized uh, uh, the priest uh, the clergyman served a liturgy in memory of all mothers angels and in celebration of all mothers and it was uh, fantastic and this feeling when somebody uh, tells hug always uh, i recall this liturgy in memory of my mother and in celebration of all mothers oh that's really mm-hmm. wonderful that's really yeah. lovely and uh, i would like to summarize to resume my our conversation with this uh, mm-hmm. quote of Wiesel. Mm-hmm. Without memory, there is no culture. Without memory, there would be no civilization, no society, no future. Thank you. It's wonderful. That's so Thank true. You. Thank you so much. It's so true. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, without hope, I would, I would say too. I would add without hope. Without we need hope. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to thank you for inviting me for this uh, very inspiring conversation. And uh, I am ready to meet new challenges on my way to Artsakh and in Artsakh. Thank you very much. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming. And thank you for your message of love and peace and faith in the world. It is really wonderful. And I feel so honored that we were able to share that with you today. It was a huge inspiration. And, um, you know, we wish you such safety. Be safe in Artsakh. Thank you. Thank you. you know, and but uh, let's remember the biblical verse. Mm. Blessed are the peacemakers. Yes. So yes. these blessings we have always in our heart mm. and in our prayers. And uh, taking this opportunity, I would like uh, to share with you that in Artsakh, I will pray for those who are in need, mm-hmm. for those who are in refugee camps, for those who want to return their homes, mm-hmm. and for those who have this pain, as you said, Iran, but there are difficulties and they cannot express their pain. Mm-hmm. For all those who are in need, I will pray and I will recall them in my prayers. Thank you very much. Thank and you, Marina. You are Armenia. This is in Armenia. Yes, Norakaluchun. We worked on that word. And it's such a difficult. It is in Greek. Oh, how does it sound in Greek again? What is it in Greek? Oh, that might be harder. <laughs> Even harder. We have to practice. <laughs> you okay. are so inspiring, Marina. Yeah. You've, it's been a wonderful experience for me to have you here. You're just a wonderful person, wonderful individual. Completely. So thank, thank you. Thank you very much. You are so smart and nice ladies. And I really appreciate our uh, contact and our friendship. Why we not? We yes. do too. Yes, wonderful, we Marina. We can't wait to meet you in person. <laughs> Hopefully, yes. hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. I, I will feel blessed. I will feel blessed. Thank you so much, Marina. Thank you, Marina. Bye-bye. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, bye. for listening. Bye-bye. 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 bye-bye.